Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Amanda Knox is a celebrity for reasons she'd rather not be. She was the subject of international media attention after being wrongfully convicted of a murder that took place in the Italian town of Perugia. She spent four years in prison before her conviction was overturned. The Emmy-nominated Netflix documentary, the eponymous Emmy-nominated Netflix documentary, shed light on the almost uncomfortable way in which Italian prosecutors and police handled the investigation. She's since gone on to become an author activist, podcaster, and mum. She's currently hosting, alongside her partner Christopher Robinson, the podcast Labyrinth, that delves into stories of getting lost and found again through compassionate interviews, philosophical rants, and playful debate with fascinating people like Malcolm Gladwell. Please note that the following interview contains some material that you may find distressing, but I have to say I found talking to her utterly illuminating. I began by asking why she decided to embark on the podcast. Oh, my. Well, um, I have been the subject of incredible media scandal. Uh, The worst experience of my life and uh, the lives of people I care about was treated as content and entertainment for a lot of people. And that made me want to approach journalism, which is a powerful tool with a new kind of ethics and compassion, centering the people who find themselves at these in these fascinating stories at the center of their own narrative. So they feel like they have some kind of agency. And I feel like that's been a really powerful thing that I've been working towards as I've been processing my own trauma since coming home from prison. Yeah, because it also meant for you, I mean, embarking on this podcast, uh, has meant revisiting a lot of the trauma that you experienced. I mean, was that sort of collateral damage, if you will, that you knew would would, would be a part of the process? Or has that been surprisingly uh, either traumatizing or, or cathartic? I think that any time you are talking about something in a way that it can be of use to someone else. So very often in my podcast, when I do bring up uh, my own worst experience, it's often in conversation with someone else, empathizing or giving perspective. And that has been greatly, greatly cathartic for me. And I hope for the people I talk to. 
It's interesting talking to you because back when the whole case, you know, came to to the forefront of of the newspapers, I used to wonder what it must feel like to be you in that situation. You know, you were incredibly young, your friend had been murdered, and you had the sort of onslaught of the the world's media, and you were accused of a hideous crime. How do you feel when you think about that period now? What did it feel like? I mean, can can you oh. describe it? Oh, um, I mean, it's it's interesting because it feels like over the years I have suffered different kinds of grief or experienced different kinds of grief over that period of my life. At the time, it was absolutely surreal. It almost felt like it was too crazy to be actually happening. And I was very much living a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. As the years have gone by, as I've been able to move on with my life, I've regained my freedom, I've regained a sense of agency in my own life. I look back on that period and I feel deep, deep sadness for my younger self and for everyone around this tragedy, Meredith's family, because they lost a daughter and her whole identity was forgotten in the midst of this investigation and, the, and these trials. So I look back and I feel a deep sadness, but I also feel like I've learned something about human attention and public interest and storytelling and how incredibly powerful storytelling is and how it can often come in conflict with the truth. You must have been completely shocked by the extent to which you were vilified, the, the, the person who was portrayed, this sort of satanic sex games, that the, the whole thing was like something out of some bad TV drama. I mean, you know, that's I can, easy for me to say from, from a distance, but, but mm. you were living it. I mean, did you have any sense of where this whole alternative persona uh, was, was being developed out of? I mean, that's a very good question. There are a lot of touchstones in the way that the story was presented. There was very much a, a hearkening back to really old tropes about the Madonna whore dichotomy. There was certainly, because the crime happened so near Halloween, there was a, a sort of reliance upon occult imagery and occult ideas. There was a vilification of sex. So in a, in a way, it's the oldest story. <laughs> and, and in some ways, it was so fantastical. And what's shocking to me and has always been shocking to me, especially as I was going through it, was that people, people cared more about that story than they cared about the truth. And it wasn't like we didn't know who actually committed this horrific crime. There was copious evidence pointing to the local burglar, Rudy Gaudet. And yet that story of the overly lustful, therefore violent woman who kills the pure, virtuous girl is um, something that captivated people's attention and they just couldn't let go of it. When were you most frightened? Because I imagine at the beginning you just thought this is going to be cleared up. I mean, they're going to realize that, that they've made a mistake and, and, you know, I'm going to go home to my parents. This is going to be all right. Yeah, I mean, I did think that for a very long time, more longer than you, you would think. But again, like these horrible things happen to you and you think clearly the adult in the room is going to fix the situation. But honestly, the most scared I've ever felt was long, like, not long before, it was before I was arrested. It was in those days between discovering that Meredith had been murdered and not knowing what was going on and it being very confusing uh, going in and out of the police 
office every day, answering their questions over and over again until finally in the middle of the night after days and days of questioning, they made me feel like I was insane. They told me that I had amnesia, that I had witnessed the murder. And then if I didn't remember it for them right then and there, I was never going to see my family again. And I was going to go to prison for 30 years. And that was the worst experience by far of the entire thing was going through that interrogation and being made to feel like I was crazy and being made to sign statements that were not true. Did you start wondering if you were crazy? I mean, in the moment, yes. In the moment, I absolutely could not explain why these cops were yelling at me, why they were telling me that I was not with my boyfriend that night, why they were telling me they knew that I knew who the murderer was, why they were hitting me, why they were yelling at me. And after so many hours of this, the only thing that I could explain their behavior towards me calling me crazy, calling me a liar, was that I indeed did have amnesia. And that was the only explanation. Where do you think it all came from? The foxy, noxy and the the whole sort of image of you and indeed this absolute determination that, that you were the person that was guilty of the crime. You know, do you feel that you contributed to it at all? It's hard to see how, but do you have regrets? Um, I mean, I know that once I was arrested and once it was pronounced case closed to the entire world, um, the prosecution and the detectives had basically decided that they were following this this line. I mean, the last thing that they needed after a horrific crime of an innocent young woman who was visiting their country was now a innocent young woman who was visiting their country being arrested for wrongly arrested for a crime. And so I think that after I was arrested, and then especially when they found all of the evidence pointing to a completely separate person, Rudy Gaudet, they started to build a case in order to protect their reputation, honestly. You know, I'm not entirely sure whether or not they were even conscious that they were doing it. I wonder if like deep down they thought they were doing the right thing and they had to explain how a young woman would be responsible for the rape and murder of a of another young woman. And so they made up a monster. And because I had not been in Perugia very long, not a lot of people knew me. There was a reliance upon stereotype and upon these old, old stories and stereotypes about young women who are sexually active. You said that you believed for perhaps too long or longer than I might imagine or we might imagine that the nightmare would end. When did you realize that it wasn't going to end, that in fact it was going to get worse? Uh, When I got a guilty verdict two years into my whole experience, I very, very much believed and my family believed that we were in this dark tunnel, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel and the truth would win out. And when I heard the guilty verdict, my entire world collapsed. Everything that I thought that I could rely on about the criminal justice system, about society, about the truth, everything collapsed. And I returned back to that prison, realizing that the truth didn't matter. I didn't matter. And that I was, my life was a very, very different life than I thought I was going to have. What age were you, Amanda, when that happened? I was 24. 
I can't even. I'm sorry, 22. I was 22. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was 22. Oh my gosh, I was so little. It hurt. Like it's so hard for me to look back on because like my my younger sisters are now this age, and it's like they're so young. I was so young. Um, it's that's what it's hard. That's what's <laughs> that's what that's what's so hard to encompass about the whole thing is that you were really. I mean, just out of childhood. What did you feel when you were, you know, in prison for those four years? You know, how did you get by? Well, like I said, there was a a big shift after the first two years after I'd been convicted. The first two years, I really felt like I was I was in limbo. I felt like I clearly belonged home with my mom and I felt like my life was on pause and I was just getting through this terrible experience and waiting for the the right thing to happen for me to be able to go home. But after I was convicted, I suddenly realized that this was my home, whether I liked it or not, and whether I deserved it or not. And this was my community. This was my life going forward. And I had to find a way to make my life worth living, even within the constraints that I was in. And that made me very purposeful. Um, Every day, I was very mindful about choosing something that felt like my life was worth it, even if it was just writing a letter to my mom, like maintaining that relationship or, or reading a book and maintaining mental acuity. These were, these were the things that I had left to me and I was desperately clinging to everything that I had left. Do you think that your strength, your ability to do that was ironically is probably not the right word ironically though because it's the only one that's coming to my mind that that the very thing that in a way saw you being wrongfully accused because somehow you did have strength but did you ever think gosh you know I was too strong as a woman I should have been weeping and and gnashing my teeth Uh, and I should have shown the world that vulnerability you know and then perhaps mm. they wouldn't have have cast me as this evil sexual temptress Uh, You know, that's an interesting interpretation. And I think there is something to that. What I will say is in those days after before I was arrested, but after we discovered Meredith had been murdered, I didn't feel like I didn't feel very brave. I do think that I was putting on a brave face because I felt like from the get go, the police were saying that I was a very important witness. I was one of the first people to discover that this crime took place and so that they were relying on me and they needed to rely on me. And so I did feel in a way that I had to put on a brave face. But at the same time, I feel like those early days and honestly, months and months into my imprisonment, I was still processing what was happening to me. I was in shock. Um, and I, I look back on you know, those images of me in the very early days. And I, I look at somebody who's in shock because I did not ever, ever anticipate going and studying abroad and spending time with wonderful girls and living alongside them. Like the last thing that I thought was that one of us would get hurt and hurt so badly and that I would be that close to being murdered myself. So honestly, in those early days... I think it was less me being stoic and more me being in shock. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How did it feel to to come out and then be faced with this person who'd been created who wasn't you? Well, I've described it before as feeling like there was a doppelganger version of me out there in the world, in people's minds, that I have constantly been in conversation with ever since. And it has been a struggle. Like when I first came home, I thought I was going to go back to my life. And I thought I was going to go back to being a student and an anonymous person who could go on with her life. And sure, people were going to always remember that I had been wrongly accused, but hopefully the legal outcome would matter and that I would get to have my life back. And instead, what I have faced ever since then is feeling the burden of infamy, feeling the weight of the infamy of someone else's actions on my shoulders and being held answerable for his crimes forever. And feeling like my identity has become wrapped up in my friend's murder. And it's not. I feel like one of the big, like subtle conversations that I've been trying to have with broader society is, yes, you you know me because I was wrongly accused of this crime, but that's not who I am. And that's not why my experience matters. My experience matters because anyone could have been me, anyone. And I'm not special. And in fact, this happens way more often than people think. And there are countless people in prison today who are not getting all of the media attention, who are fighting to be heard and fighting to prove their innocence. And in the meantime, there are victims, real victims of crimes whose murderers or rapists have gone free because we have not pursued the just and correct case. Your story, though, is like a Greek myth. It's something so vast and so poisonous in terms of the portrayal of women. I mean, it goes to the absolute heart of, of everything in our culture that's, that's bad and dark about how women are still thought of, portrayed, vilified. You know, and, and that's something that you explore really interestingly in quite a number of the, of the Labyrinth podcasts. Talk to me a little bit about how you see that in that context. Absolutely. I mean, it's as someone who has become sort of the name and face of vilified woman. Um, <laughs> vilified a lot womanhood. Of, <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of women have reached out to me also just because like when I first started out doing journalism, when I was still in hiding, but trying to find my voice and trying to understand if I if my own perspective would be accepted in society, regardless of 
everything that happened. And I started out by talking to other women who were shamed and vilified. That has been a cause for me. Um, it's one of the major factors in the wrongful convictions of women, women who are vilified through their sexuality. And I have had countless women approach me saying like, I'm, I'm going to the same thing, but it's only my small, my small town has, but they've decided that I'm a villain and that I'm a sex villain and they won't believe me. Um, I'm thinking of a young girl who was raped when she was 14 years old. Her name was Daisy Coleman. And I interviewed her um, before my podcast for the Scarlet Letter Reports. And she had been raped by the local football kid and came home, reported it. No one believed her. And she was slut shamed, vilified, and she tried to commit suicide. And it was an overwhelming experience of, of her life to find her life not being believed, being harmed and then not being believed, which is the further harm, and ultimately took her life um, years later after I met her. But I'm thinking also of, you know, Samantha Geimer, who in a similar situation, um, raped when she was 13 years old by Roman Polanski, and her case became this huge cause celeb. The justice system was going after Polanski for decades and constantly dredging up her trauma, paparazzi showing up outside of her house anytime a new thing in the case happened, long before Polanski and her had reconciled and had come to terms. And she described to me in, in Labyrinths how the media exploitation was worse to her than the actual rape itself. And how if she had to relive one or the other, she would have relived the rape. And I feel like that perspective is not one that we hear very often. But I do think it's a very real reason why women don't come forward when they've been raped, because they're afraid of being vilified and they're afraid of this worst experience of their life coming to define them forever in other people's eyes. And I think that that is a valuable lesson for us all about what is the purpose of our justice system, what is the purpose of our media, and whether or not it is being used in the service of people who have been harmed. Did you ever contemplate suicide, 22-year-old you alone in your cell for something you didn't commit? I did. And it's, it's interesting. I thought about it as a way of, once again, feeling purposeful about my life. I felt like my life had been stolen from me, and I felt like I was trapped in my own life. And in a very real way, I was. I was trapped in a prison cell because the world had decided that my life and my identity was something that it was not. And I imagined the ways that I could escape from this. And the only way to escape is to escape your own life. And I thought very uh, strategically about how I could do it. But at the end of the day, it was a conversation I was having with myself about whether my life was worth it. And I always, always, always felt like they had taken so much from me. I wasn't going to relinquish the rest. In fact, I was going to fight and my life was worth it and my identity was worth it. And I, even if I, the only thing I could do that day was write a letter to my mom to keep a sense of myself and my sanity intact, that was worth it. I mean, you must have some resentment to the the prosecutors who plowed this path without having the evidence to, that should have convicted you, but even more so perhaps to the fact that the man who committed the murder, Rudy Good, is now out of prison. And, you know, most people would struggle to remember his name. I certainly did until, you know, I read through the press clippings because he's not the story. 
I mean, I look back and of course, I'll be honest, I feel anger. I feel sadness more than I feel anger that it's just the way it turned out, that public interest turned out the way it did. I do think that when it comes to my prosecutor, my feelings are less anger or bitterness and more interest. You know, in in the world of crime, we talk a lot about the psychology of victims and the psychology of perpetrators, but we don't talk about the psychology of prosecutors. And I want to understand how someone in a position of power can convince himself that he's doing the right thing when he's wrongly convicting an innocent person. That has the why question of it all has always bothered me, at least when it comes to my prosecutor. And I feel like I'm close to understanding. When it comes to Rudy Gaudet, the why question is more disappointing, maybe, because I don't even know if he knows why he did what he did. It's, it's so hard for me to put myself in his shoes and understand why he did what he did and, and why he's continuing to perpetrate the harm today. He's the one who started all of this, and he's the one who's been held only partially accountable. But like when it comes to me understanding wrongful convictions, I want to understand the psychology of my prosecutor. And I've been doing a lot of empathy work and compassion work to get there, because I don't think that you can end up understanding anyone without empathy and compassion. When you say Rudy Goodell is continuing to perpetrate the harm today, how do you mean I mean that he has not held himself fully accountable. He has not explained what really happened that night. He continues to point the finger at me. And he's doing that for self-interest. But in so doing, he is continuing the harm. He is continuing to lie. And what about your boyfriend at the time? I mean, who was Raffaele. also... Raffaele. Raffaele, who's also dragged into all of this in the same way that, that, that you were. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned him because a lot of people forget him too. And that's another kind of trauma to be wrongly convicted and for no one to care. He's living his life in Italy. He's um, doing the best he can. But again, he's struggling with that sense of people always, when they think about this case, and even if they think about the wrongful conviction part of it, they don't think of him. And he spent just as many days in prison as a wrongfully convicted person as I did. And in the meantime, he had every opportunity to turn on me to save his own skin. He talked about how ultimately the prosecution wasn't really interested in him. They were interested in me. And if he was willing to take the stand and lie and say that I wasn't with him that night, they probably would have let him go. But he didn't do it because he knew it wasn't the right thing to do. And no one really gives him credit for that. He's a very, very brave, honest young man who has been fighting to reclaim his life and his identity too. And he has had similar and different struggles than I have. Surprisingly, despite all your experiences, you're not afraid to stick your head above the parapet uh, <laughs> when you feel it, 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 things need to be said. You said in a, a column that you wrote that Ghislaine Maxwell's conviction on sex trafficking charges in the U.S. gave you flashbacks of what happened to you. And of course, it's it's hard to find sympathy for Ghislaine Maxwell at the moment. I wonder what you meant by it, because obviously it, it caused controversy. 
Yes, indeed, especially when the headlines <laughs> pitched it that way. But yes, what I was speaking to was, you know, here in the United States, as the Elizabeth Holmes and Ghislaine Maxwell trials were going on, of course, they were top of the top of the morning. Every headline was about these two women who were on trial for, in Maxwell's case, very heinous crimes. And in many ways, they were being Maxwell's defense was, well, you are just trying to find me guilty because Jeffrey Epstein is is dead and you want to hold somebody accountable for his crimes, but it shouldn't be me. And I thought that that was an interesting defensive strategy on her part, that she was trying to hide behind the crimes of the man when she was, in fact, guilty of her own set of crimes. But I do think that part of the reason why there's so much public interest in this case is because we wanted to ha- to hold Epstein accountable and she's the next best thing. So I was in the one sense pointing to the fact that, you know, Maxwell was obviously guilty of these terrible crimes and should be held accountable for her crimes. But also we should be careful and mindful as a society when we have such raging interest in some cases over others. And wasn't this just another example of the reason why we really, really cared about this case was because it was the opportunity to vilify a woman for sex crimes. So. How much do you think that, that, that your experience, uh, because it sort of coincided with the advent of social media and the worldwide, you know, how much it was sort of exacerbated by the fact that it, it could be spread across the globe so instantly and, and without any form of censure? I think that it's important to note that it wasn't just social media that was the cause of spread of misinformation. It was traditional media as well. And it was tabloid media that was being reproduced abroad as if it were legitimate media. I'm more interested in how the current economic model for journalism is at odds with truth seeking and how because, you know, there's a you mentioned the Netflix documentary about this case um, earlier on. There's a tabloid journalist named Nick Pisa um, interviewed for that. You know, he makes the case that he doesn't have time as a journalist to double check his sources and do his own private investigation. He's repeating what authorities, the prosecution and detectives are telling him. And what's interesting to me in this situation is the point of journalism. Ultimately, the power of journalism is it's in, in its ability to hold authorities, especially accountable to the truth. And if the economic model for journalism prohibits them from doing that, then what is journalism for anymore? You've got a six-month-year-old daughter, Eureka. I don't know. How's that impacted you uh, on you in terms of your experience? You now have her life to be responsible for, and it must have given you perhaps in some ways a clearer understanding of how your parents must have felt when what happened to you did, and, and, and also how you want her to know you? I mean, do you fear that the myth of you will even carry down into the next generation? I know that my daughter is going to know me. What I'm afraid of is that people are going to think they know who my daughter is because they think they know who I am and that she is going to be living in the shadow of the worst experience of my life, just as I have. I want to protect her from that. But of course, I also recognize that I don't have control over society and the way people treat her. 
I can just try to begin a conversation um, as I did shortly after she was um, born about how her life and her privacy and matters and how in my own life, I have had to grapple and adapt to a set of very difficult circumstances, but she shouldn't have to go through the same ones as I have. And I can hopefully pave a way for her to encounter her own, you know, injustices in in this world, but hopefully with a set of tools that will help her along the way, especially the knowledge that if you need help, you should ask for it. But you're right. You know, this having a daughter has put this experience into a new perspective. Suddenly I have a huge appreciation uh, for what my mom went through and for what Meredith's mom went through and for what Raffaele's dad went through. His, his mom was dead by the time everything happened, but like how important our moms are. And how necessary my mom was for me surviving and becoming the person I am today. Without her, I don't think I would be able to sit here and talk to you about it. Being a mom, as all moms know, puts everything into perspective and her life is what matters to me today. Just finally, have you tried to reach out to Meredith's parents? I have, um, mostly through back channels because I am wary of directly sending them any messages in case that is triggering for them. I don't love to talk about it a lot, though, because I don't want them to feel like they're under pressure to respond to me. So in whatever time they need, I just want them to know that I'm here. I want to talk. I want to grieve. And I think that we can do that together. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time. Hold up. 